Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, is there sufficient evidence to believe that Genesis 1-1 is indeed true? Or do we just take it on faith? Well, there's something out there, as you all know, called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And this was brought into the modern age by Dr. William Lane Craig, when in 1979, he wrote a book by the same name. And since then, Dr. Craig has been all over the world using that argument as one argument for the existence of God. Is that argument still sound? What has happened in recent years regarding that argument? Well, we have two of the best that Christianity has to offer today to talk about that argument. One is Dr. William Lane Craig himself, whom, ladies and gentlemen, he has probably debated more people, more atheists and agnostics and skeptics than anyone else in the past 40 or so years. So it's a great privilege to have Dr. Craig. You all know of him. Go to reasonablefaith.org if you don't. And also, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer will be on this show today. Uh, Dr. Meyer, as you know, has written three seminal books. The latest is called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And Dr. Meyer has his view of the cosmological argument as well. So Steve and Bill will talk about their own ways to get to the cosmological argument. And we'll also look at objections to that argument. And then we're going to take your questions. So let's start with Dr. William Lane Craig, all the way from the area of Atlanta, Georgia. Bill comes uh, to us today. Bill, how are you today? I am doing great, Frank. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's our privilege to have you on. And it was great seeing you just a couple of months ago at ETS. We had a, a great discussion there, and I'm looking forward to another one today. Bill, let's go back to 1979. Uh, you wrote a book called The Kalam Cosmological Argument. And in my view, that little book brought this argument, which actually is a, a, an, a, an older argument, it brought it into the modern age. And ever since then, people have been talking about this argument. What prompted you to write that little book, The Column Cosmological Argument? Well, it was due to the fact that I read a book by Stuart Hackett, published in 1957, entitled The Resurrection of Theism. And I credit Hackett with bringing this argument into the modern age. Unfortunately, his book fell into a black hole, uh, went quickly <laughs> out of print, it received no attention. But I ran across it uh, at a clearance sale at our college bookstore my senior year, just before graduation. And after graduation, I read this book and was absolutely bowled away. You see, I had been taught by my theology professors at Wheaton that there are no good arguments for God's existence, that they've all been refuted. And although that seemed counterintuitive to me, I, I had great respect for my professors. And I thought, well, when they say there are no good arguments, that they, they must be right. And then I read Hackett's book, and he had argument after argument uh, in support of the existence of God. 
and refutations of every conceivable objection. And the centerpiece of his case for theism was this argument, the Kalam cosmological argument. And it was then and there that I determined in my mind that I had to settle my mind about this argument, whether it really is sound as it seemed to be, or whether there was a hidden flaw. And so when I went off to England to do my doctoral work in philosophy, I proposed the cosmological argument as the subject of my doctoral thesis or dissertation. And so I wrote on that topic under John Hick, and this book uh, came out of that research in that degree. Now, state the argument as you formulated, Bill. What what actually is the column cosmological argument, say, as opposed to just the cosmological argument? It goes like this. Uh, premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then you do a conceptual analysis of what it is to be a cause of the universe. And a number of theologically striking properties fall out of such an analysis for this first cause. Uh, you can show that this first uncaused cause must be beginningless, uh, timeless, changeless, uh, immaterial, spaceless, enormously powerful, and I would argue personal which I think is a robust um, core concept of God. And I know the approach you, you took from the beginning, Bill, was uh, a philosophical uh, proof of the cosmological argument, philosophical evidence. What would be an example of the philosophical evidence for the cosmological argument, column cosmological argument? argument extends all the way back to about AD 300 and then was debated right up through the Middle Ages to the time of Kant. And obviously, those thinkers did not have scientific arguments for the beginning of the universe. And so they pressed philosophical arguments against the possibility of an infinite regress of events in time, a beginningless regress of events. And it was those arguments that I picked up on and that came to form the centerpiece of my argument uh, for the second premise that the universe began to exist. But in the course of my work in Birmingham, I discovered that there were remarkable scientific correlations with this premise as well. And I began to study contemporary cosmology. And to my astonishment, I found that the paradigm among contemporary cosmologists was that, in fact, the universe is not past infinite, but had a beginning a finite time ago. And, and I wrote that up in the dissertation. When Professor Hick read the dissertation, he told me later he took it to a physicist at the university and asked him to read it and give his opinion. And the physicist came back to him and said, everything he says is correct. And Hick said to me, why don't the theologians know about this? <laughs> By the way, friends, um, Always the last to know. That's right. The last to know, says Stephen C. Meyer. And Steve's going to come on here at the show in just a second. I want to say that uh, for those of you who watch the cross-examined feed, and we're also broadcasting this on the Reasonable Faith feed as well, 
Um, you, you, you know that I go to college campuses quite a bit and present evidence that Christianity is true. And I always talk about the cosmological <laughs> argument, also talk about the design argument. Well, if there's anyone that I've learned from on these two arguments, it's these two gentlemen we have on the program right now, Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. So I'm standing on their shoulders whenever I go to a college campus, because, Bill, what you just said there about the cause of the universe, if in fact we do have uh, the, the cosmological argument right, and of course I think we do, those six attributes that you just mentioned that flow from the data are attributes of what could be the theistic God of the Bible. Oh yes, very much so. I, I think the only major attribute missing would be God's moral attributes. Yes. Uh, for the Kalam cosmological argument, this creator could be an absolute stinker for all the arguments. <laughs> said. So That's right. It, it's not a complete case, but I like that about it. I like the modesty uh -huh. of the argument that it doesn't try to claim too much. That's right. That's well, right. And it can be complemented with other arguments as well, which is. Uh, That's know. right. Which is what you do, Steve. By the way, uh, Steve's brand new book. Well, brand new. It's uh it's about a year and a half old, and it comes out in paperback in April. It's called Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries Revealing uh, the Mind Behind the Universe. And, of course, discovery.org is the website at which Steve operates up there in Seattle. He's coming from the, the Northwest. Uh, Steve, in this uh, book, Return of the God Hypothesis, you take uh, you also talk about the cosmological, cosmological argument. You have a little bit different approach. What's your approach to this argument? Well, I've been an, an, an admirer of what Bill has done on this for years and first encountered it in a serious way when I was doing my PhD work in England uh, in, in Cambridge. And it was uh, I had at the time an opportunity to attend the lecture series that Stephen Hawking uh, conducted in his wheelchair wow. with his voice synthesizer about uh, a, a book that he was in the process of writing called um, The... Um, a brief history of time in which he developed a quantum cosmological model in an attempt to circumvent the force of the Kalam cosmological argument. And uh, the book went on to be a monster bestseller of 10 million copies, I think, at last, last I looked. And uh, it had a, a famous line in it, what, the, what need then for a creator? And uh, so I've been very interested in, in the argument and how it's played with scientists uh, for a long time. I was working mainly on the, the, the question of the origin of the first life through those years and, and subsequently. But after I published Signature in the Cell in 2009, a lot of my readers wanted to know, well, uh, you know, I, argue, I argued in that book for a designing intelligence of some kind as the best explanation for the information bearing properties of DNA and RNA and the, 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 the complexity of cells. Um, and in a sense, that too was a modest argument. It argued for intelligence without identifying the, 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 uh, the, the, the nature of the intelligence. But many of my readers wanted to know, well, who do you think the designing intelligence is and what can science tell us about that? And so in return of the God hypothesis, I've extended the work I've done on intelligent design and biology and brought in arguments from physics about the fine tuning of the universe present from the very beginning of the universe and evidence for a beginning of the of the universe and developed a cosmological argument drawing in some ways on Bill's work, but also framing it less as a, in a deductive form, but more in the form of a confirmation of a 
a scientific hypothesis or a metaphysical hypothesis and uh, extending that yet further to argue that the that the postulation of 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 theism uh, or a, a, a creator with those attributes that bill just enumerated best explains the evidence that we have um, for a beginning of the universe. So in a, an argument of that form, it doesn't have a, it doesn't uh, take a deductive form and two premises and a conclusion and then an analysis of the the causal uh, the, the cause that you you conclude in the conclusion. Rather, what it does is it postulates a causal explanation and then compares the explanatory power of that postulation, in this case, what I call the God hypothesis, with alternative, uh, metaphysical hypotheses, whether that be pantheism or materialism, scientific materialism, materialism slash naturalism, or uh, or deism. And in in arguing um, in making a cosmological argument, I argue that something like either a deistic or a theistic creator provides the best explanation for the evidence that we have that points to a beginning of the universe. And then one further move in in this type of argument. Um, there will you will always have to address counter arguments, and so um, and this is where my introduction to Hawking's work uh, came in. Is there has been this perception in the scientific community that despite the rigor of of uh, the case for the cosmological argument as expounded by by Bill and some others, that 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 Hawking and these physicists developing their quantum cosmological models have essentially circumvented the force of, of the, the argument from a beginning, <clears throat> either by showing that there wasn't a beginning, that we had a, a, um, a no-bounded universe was Hawking's proposal, or by, as Lawrence Krauss and Alexander Vilenkin have argued, that we can explain the universe from nothing out of that beginning, but from nothing uh, w w without a, a, a transcendent causal agent or an external creator. And so what, one of the things I've done in developing the case as an inference to the best explanation is taking on those uh, attempts to undermine the key premise of the argument, which is that the universe did have a, have a beginning and showing uh, this steals the thunder, but <laughs> I'll have to justify this later. But basically, that even if quantum cosmology is is true and a correct model of the universe, it has inadvertent or tacit theistic implications that have been unrecognized by the proponents of that cosmological model. Bill, let's talk about Alexander Vilenkin for a minute because uh, you've actually had conversations with he with him. He's an agnostic uh, cosmologist. I thought he taught at Tufts University. I don't know if he's still there or not. Correct. Yes. And um, you've quoted many times the uh, the Gord uh, or the uh, I always get the name wrong. The Borg-Guth-Volenkin theorem. And uh, you have pointed out that that theorem, as he has, points to a beginning to this universe. And some have suggested that you're using Volenkin inappropriately. But you talked to him about this, didn't you, Bill? Oh, yeah. I mean, both I and Jim Sinclair have corresponded uh, extensively with him about this. And he is quite emphatic uh, that the Borg-Guth-Volenkin theorem implies that if you go back in time, you cannot go infinitely into the past, that you will reach a space-time boundary. And he argues either there was something on the other side of that boundary or there was not. If not, then that boundary is the beginning of the universe. 
if there was something on the other side, then it will be this regime described by the yet to be discovered quantum theory of gravity that Steve just referred to, Mm -hmm. in which case that regime will be the beginning of the universe. But in either case, the universe began to exist. And the strength of Vilenkin's work, I think, is that he examines in considerable detail every conceivable alternative cosmological model and shows their empirical inadequacy um, in, in terms of trying to have a past eternal universe. Why do you think he's agnostic then, Bill? If it points to a beginning, why is he saying, well, I don't know if there's a creator out there then? Well, I I, I can't psychoanalyze him. I, I don't mm-hmm. know him that well. I don't know all the personal factors that might go into his agnosticism. But ostensibly, at least, if you ask him, he will say what Steve just said, that the universe came into existence from nothing and it does not need to have a cause something can come from nothing so that at least would be the intellectual reason he would give however accurately that represents his own personal feelings now steve you write about this extensively in return of the god hypothesis and apparently valenkin even at one point suggests that there could be a mind behind the universe, but he comes right up to that question and then he doesn't go any further. Explain if you would. Well, it's a fast, it's not just at one point, it's the concluding uh, page of his book, uh, Many Universe, or Many, Many Worlds, Many in, worlds one. in One. Yeah. And there's a, Valenkin is extremely uh, sensitive philosophically. And he's, and, and go back to that space-time boundary that Bill was talking mm-hmm. about. And I, and I should mention, by the way, just uh, piggybacking on the first answer, that I think that the approach that Bill takes with the deductive form of the Kalam argument and the approach that I take as a confirmation of hypothesis slash inference to the best explanation are, are perfectly complementary. And in philosophy, mm-hmm. this is something that's called robustness. When there's more than one way to the same conclusion that strengthens the conclusion this is these aren't competitors but rather complementary approaches and uh, back, so back to valenkin um there's this uh, what that's what he imagines as a possible as a possibly existing thing before the space-time boundary is the laws of quantum mechanics as applied to the beginning and very early state of the universe but he recognizes that this it's not just laws, but it's a whole mathematical apparatus, something called um, uh, the Wheeler-DeWitt equation and something called superspace and then something called the universal wave function. And I go through the 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 relationship between these three things in the book. But essentially, there's a there's a great big equation that synthesizes uh, Einstein's ideas about gravity with quantum mechanics, and it's called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation. And the scientists, the, the quantum cosmologists believe that if they can solve that equation and, and producing, and, and the solution would come in the form of a wave function, a universal wave function that would describe all the possible uh, s- gravitational fields, universes with different gravitational fields that could result. So they're trying to, they, they've got an equation that pulls together quantum mechanics and general relativity 
They want to solve that equation. And if they get a universal wave function that includes as a possibility a universe like ours, they will they will then say, we've solved the problem of the origin of the universe. The math, this mathematical apparatus and these laws of quantum mechanics um, explain where the universe came from. How does but, how does a math equation explain creation? Well, that is the rub. You've already hit, you've already touched on the key issue, and right. Vilenkin himself notices this. All on right. the last page of Many Universes in One, he says, "What tablet could these purely mathematical laws of quantum mechanics be written on? Before there's matter, space, time, and energy, there isn't a universe for them to describe, and yet math in our experience." And now paraphrasing, he says, is conceptual. It exists in a mind. So are we really saying that there is a mind that predates the universe? Big hypothetical question. You know, <laughs> he leaves the question mark hanging. There's a couple more paragraphs in the book. He never answers the question. But Hawking himself was sensitive to the same problem with quantum cosmology. He said, what puts fire in the equations that gives them a universe to describe. Math by itself is causally inert. It would be kind of like saying that the longitude and latitude lines on, the, on a map are responsible for building the Himalayan mountains. No, the, the, the longitude and latitude lines, the math is just a description. It describes what could be there. That's all the quantum cosmological equations are doing. It, it doesn't create a universe. Mm. And, and in fact, if the, therefore, if the quantum cosmological model is true, if math predates the universe, there must be a mind in which to hold that math. Mm -hmm. Math doesn't just float around disembodied. It, it's, it's a, it's a, in our experience, it exists in a mind. So I think the quantum cosmological approach, even if true, doesn't undermine the cosmological argument. It reinforces it in an unexpected way and in a couple of others that I haven't mentioned. Yes, it's uh, in fact, Bill, you and I were at ETS talking about and with an assist from Steve, because Steve had sent me an article on this, the idea that math appears to be the product of a mind. Yeah. Maybe you can comment on that for us, Bill. Well, this came to my mind as I was listening now to Steve speaking. This connects with another very powerful argument for the existence of God that uh goes by the, the uh, name, the uh, unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics after an article by Eugene Wigner, Nobel Prize winning uh, quantum physicist. And the question Wigner asks is, how is it that mathematics, which as Steve said, is causally a feat, has no effect upon anything, and is pursued a priori for aesthetic reasons without a view toward empirical adequacy, how is it that mathematics applies in such uh, reticulate detail and accuracy to the physical phenomena of our universe? And Wigner argued that there is no rational explanation for this. He says that the applicability of mathematics is a miracle. Uh, it is a <laughs> gift which we neither understand nor deserve. Well, Wigner never took seriously the hypothesis that the applicability of mathematics is literally a miracle. And mm -hmm. I think that that's the best explanation that the universe was built on the mathematical blueprint 
of a transcendent intelligent mind that conceived it and then created it uh, on that pattern. And hence, mathematics is applicable in such detail and accuracy to the physical world around us. Now, we, we can't cover all the possible objections or all the objections that are brought forth uh, toward the cosmological argument or on the cosmological argument here in this live stream, because we do want to get to your questions. But I want to address a couple of them. And if you do have a question just in the stream, uh, put in big block capital letters question and we're going to you're going to have an opportunity. We'll get to as many as we can to ask uh, Bill and Steve uh, any of your uh, questions. But uh, I'd uh, I'd like to get from each of you. Maybe we'll start with you, Steve. Uh, you, you cover uh, a lot of the objections that people might bring up against the cosmological argument. You already mentioned one of them the, from, the, from the quantum world, which turns out doesn't work. What other objection are people bringing up to the cosmological argument today, particularly from a science perspective, if you would? Well, um, and I encountered a couple of these after the publication of Return of the God Hypothesis. I had a, mm -hmm. a couple of great conversations with um, uh, a friend, uh, Brian Keating, who's an astrophysicist mm -hmm. at uh, UCSD. And uh, I think he was generally friendly to what I was doing, but said, you know, there are these newer models that you didn't address. Like uh, Roger Penrose has uh, something called the cyclic conformal cosmology. And um, uh, Paul Steinart has developed a... a um, a model, a cosmological model that's a, a variant on the oscillating universe that uh, in its straightforward form in the 80s, I think was refuted decisively by some work that Alan Guth did and other uh, observations. Um, and so in the epilogue to my, uh, the paperback version of the book, I address these couple of these newer cosmological models. Um, what, what I have found in, in looking at them is that that there, uh, in the case of Steinhardt's, for example, uh, it turns out that the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem applies to the Steinhardt model. And so even if you have these numerous cycles of creation and contraction and creation, um, you're, you're, you're going to get back to a beginning. Um, and in all of the models, all of the alternative models, there's a, a strange thing that, that I've uh, discovered uh, working closely with my colleague, Brian Miller, a physicist here at Discovery Institute. And that is that if someone comes up with a model that seems to circumvent the need for a beginning, invariably that model ends up having uh, fine tuning problems, that it has to invoke unexplained fine tuning. The first example of this was actually Einstein's um, choice of a particular value for the cosmological constant in order to circumvent the implication of his own theory of general relativity. If you remember the history of that episode, Einstein tumbled to the idea that the universe must have a beginning because general relativity was a new theory. His new theory of gravity implied that massive bodies were curving space. And if, if, if gravity of that sort was the only force in the universe, then space would have curved around the matter in the universe, the matter would have contracted to itself, and we'd live in a giant black hole. We don't live in a universe like that. We live in a universe with empty space between massive bodies. Therefore, there must be an outward pushing force, an anti-gravity force, which he called the cosmological constant. Fair enough. But then he chose a very precise value for it to try to depict the universe as static, as neither expanding outward from a beginning or contracting towards a, 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 an ending. But the choice of that, that 
cosmological constant was extremely finely tuned and arbitrarily so to depict to circumvent the the depiction of the universe as a as an as a system that was expanding outward from the beginning so his attempt in modeling to get around the beginning required unexplained fine tuning which underwrites a different type of theistic argument. And interestingly, these newer cosmological models, Penrose's model, Steinhardt's model, are subject to this same problem, that an attempt to depict the universe as infinite in uh, in time and space, they end up having to, um, to invoke unexplained fine-tuning to make the models work. So there's a lot more you can say about these. Uh, the Penrose model has other problems. He invokes something called a phantom field, which other physicists have criticized for having essentially godlike properties that no other physical <laughs> field we've ever, that, that no other physical field in physics has. So in order to get around the God hypothesis, you have to invent a field that essentially has powers of agency that allows um, reductions in entropy at just the right time and in just the right way to get another a cycle of expansion of the universe, but that's essentially a creation event by an, you know by another name. He just calls it a phantom field. So there's some these. It it takes a while to get into these things because they're shrouded in mathematics. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I don't think any of these newer models really solve the, the basic problem. And one other thing I'd say about the the quantum cosmological stuff is that when you get into the physics papers, the actual technical papers that Valinkin. Uh, or Hartle and Hawking wrote, as opposed to Hawking's popular work, all the all the, the technical papers reaffirm the singularity. They presuppose the singularity, and I think this reinforces, uh, you know, the force of Bill's argument. Is he's uh, you know engaged these guys? He really is correct that they do not get around the beginning. They end up presupposing it, even in the quantum cosmological models. Now, Bill, you've covered a lot of the uh, objections to the cosmological argument in your book, Reasonable Faith. Uh, what objection do you find that is most prevalent out there other than the one Steve had mentioned to the cosmological argument? And what is the answer to them? Well, what I'm interested in, in addition to the scientific confirmation of the second premise that the universe began to exist, are those philosophical arguments against an infinite temporal regress. And there has been considerable uh, work published on these philosophical arguments. I want to mention uh, a very fine defense of these arguments by the brilliant philosopher Alexander Proust uh, in his book on causation and infinity. But in addition to that positive uh, treatment, it seems that many objections that are being thrown about today are to the effect that if these arguments do succeed in showing the finitude of the past, then they would also succeed in showing the finitude of the future. And that would contradict Christian doctrines like the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body, the world to come, and so forth. Uh, and therefore, um, I guess the advice would be you, you Christians better not use these arguments because you're going to be undermining your own theology uh, if they do imply the finitude of the future. And so the challenge for the defender of the argument will be to show some sort of asymmetry between the past and the future, such that these arguments show the past to be finite, 
but do not apply to the future. And I think such an asymmetry is to be found in uh, the tensed theory of time, which treats temporal becoming as an objective and real feature of the world, as opposed to a tenseless theory of time, according to which all events in time and space, whether past, present, or future, are all equally real and existent. And I think given this tensed theory of time, which I've written on extensively, uh, that establishes an asymmetry between past and future that will undo these arguments. Now, I'd like to ask people who believe in the tenseless uh, uh, theory of time, when did you come to believe in the tenseless <laughs> theory of time? You know, Very mischievous. At one point, you did not believe it, and now you do. When, when did that happen? So, yes, it, it seems I don't see any theological or philosophical problem, Bill, with assuming that something can have a beginning and no end, right? I think not, right. I, yeah. I think given the tense theory of time, uh, something can have a beginning, but then go on potentially infinitely, that mm -hmm. is to say endlessly. And in that case, it merely approaches infinity as a conceptual limit, but it never arrives at infinity. Let me ask one objection, Bill, because you get this a lot, and uh, I know you've addressed it quite a bit. Some people will say, well, the law of causality does not apply to, does not apply metaphysically. It doesn't apply to the beginning of the universe. It just applies once, I, once you're in the universe. How would you respond? I think that that c construes the causal principle as a physical principle akin to the laws of thermodynamics or Boyle's laws of ideal gases that only apply once the universe comes to exist. But the causal principle is not a physical principle. It's a metaphysical principle uh, going all the way back to the pre-Socratics. And it's rooted in the metaphysical idea that being only comes from being. Being does not come from non-being. And therefore, it is impossible, uh, metaphysically impossible, for something to come into being without a cause. And that includes the universe, as well as things that happen to exist inside the universe. Steve, quite frequently you'll hear people say, well, you're saying that God created the universe, but who made God? Oh, well, that's a, a really common objection. And I think the, the new cosmology and, and these arguments that Bill has developed against uh, the, the possibility of an actual infinite, both um, I think help to answer that. My way, my take on that is that every every worldview or metaphysical system has to answer the question: What is the the thing or the entity or the process from which everything came? Um, worldview writers call that the prime reality question. Philosophers call that the question of ontology: What is the ground of all being? Every system has to have uh, essentially an uncaused cause. Materialism has affirmed the eternality of matter, that matter and energy are eternal and self-existent. Theism says, no, a personal God is eternal and self-existent. Both systems have a prime reality that they affirm. The question is, which of those two uh, postulates as to the ground of all being is the, provides a better explanation of the data that we have about the natural world? Since, since we have learned that the universe, as best we can tell from observational astronomy, 
from the singularity theorems and from the Borg-Vilenkin theorem, three lines of evidence, as best we can tell, had a beginning. That suggests that matter and energy is a really crummy candidate to be the thing from which everything else came, <laughs> because matter and energy came into existence. It began to exist in, in the formulation of the Kalam argument, second premise. And so uh, of those two possible uh, prime realities, the, the personal god of theism uh, is a much better candidate to, uh, to, to provide the basis of, of all reality, to be the thing from which everything else came. Uh, Carl Sagan years ago said, you know, in his famous Cosmos series, the universe is all there is and all there was and all there ever will be. Well, if the universe is all there is, there can be nothing external to the universe that could cause its existence. But since it did begin to exist, we need precisely such a cause to account for its existence. And materialism or naturalism as a worldview is incapable of providing such an entity because before the material universe came into existence, there was no matter to do the causing. Before we get to the questions from the audience, Bill, I have one further objection that I'd like you to address. And folks, if you want to ask a question of either Dr. Craig or Dr. Meyer, just type in big block capital letters question. We'll try and get to as many as we can here in just a minute. Uh, Dr. Craig, uh, quite frequently you'll hear atheists say, OK, we can't get behind Planck time. We don't know what happened prior oh. to uh, the creation of the space time continuum. How do you respond? What I say is that you do not need to have a physical description of that early stage of the universe in order to know that the universe began to exist. The cosmologist Charles Misner gave a wonderful illustration of this. He said, it is as though a tiny window shade were drawn over the first split second of the universe. And we can't see what went on behind that shade. But he says, we know that it didn't come out on the other side. Mm. So even though you may not have a physical description of that initial split second, we do have good reasons, as we've already explained, for thinking that the universe is not past eternal. You know, it's interesting. For years, atheists believed the universe was eternal, and they had no problem believing that. Now, as soon as we say, no, the universe is finite and God is eternal, they go, oh, you can't have an eternal God. Wait a minute. <laughs> you, guys, you guys have had an eternal universe forever. There was no problem with that. All right, let's go to some questions. Yeah, Frank, Frank, can I quit piggy yeah, piggyback yeah, on Bill, Bill's answer? Yeah, please, because, please. Um, <clears throat> he's mentioned the board with Valenkin theorem. Mm -hmm. the, the, it's important to understand the reason that people say you can't back extrapolate past that 10 to the minus 43rd of a second after mm -hmm. the beginning. Um, the reason that people say that, the physicists say that, is that inside that tiny smidgen of space and time, uh, the, the quantum effects would become significant, and we are waiting for a, a comprehensive theory of quantum gravity. We don't have that. But the board with Valenka, uh, and so because of that, uh, the, the claim is made we can't back extrapolate all the way to the singularity that Hawking and Penrose proved on the basis of general relativity, which is a theory of gravity. We need to take into the account the possibility that there may be another factor that we have to, to uh, incorporate into our theories of gravity. But the board guth valenkin theorem is not based on general relativity. It's based on special relativity. And much like the uh, extra back extrapolation that astrophysicists have made on the basis of physical evidence, the uh, the the proof that the board Guth and Valenkin offer reaches a point 
where you cannot back extrapolate any further. There is a, a, a limit and that limit m marks the beginning. So we have good physical evidence for a beginning, as Bill has said, even if we don't have a complete quantum theory of gravity yet. All right, let's go to questions. Uh, Raphael asks, uh, and we'll start with you, Bill. What do you mean okay. by began to exist in the Kalam cosmological argument, bearing in mind that neither matter nor energy has ever been seen to be created coming into existence? Yeah. Uh, I define this expression begins to exist in my published work. Let me see if I can remember it. I say that X begins to exist at a time T, if and only if X comes into being at T. And then I define X comes into being at T as um, X comes into being at T, if and only if X exists at T, and T is the first time at which X exists and X does not exist timelessly. That will give you, I think, a definition of begins to exist that will apply not only to the universe, but also even to time itself. Steve, anything to add to that? Well, just the uh, little less philosophical, with less philosophical rigor, maybe a little bit of a story. Bill and I were both at a conference back in 1985. He was already an established philosopher by that time. I was a wet behind the ears young scientist, but the conference was called Christianity. You're not Challenges. that much younger, Steve. I can see Bill going, come on. Uh, only a little bit. Only a little bit. He's just publishing earlier than anybody else. That's right. He was. 1979. Well, I, I was still thinking about basketball. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, we were at this conference and it was about the origin of the universe, the origin of life and the origin and nature of human consciousness. And in the cosmology section, um, uh, the great cosmologist, astrophysicist, Alan Standage, who had been a grad student yeah. of Edwin Hubble, he'd been in, deeply involved in verifying the expansion of the universe with the galactic redshift evidence at Mount Wilson. He climbed to the podium and sat down on, this, on the side of the, the theists. It was, a, it was a discussion divided between theists and scientific materialists about the origin of the universe, the origin of life, et cetera. And he took the podium for the first time publicly acknowledging a religious conversion and his his acceptance of theism and the the thing that he described when in describing that point where the universe began to exist was the thing that that began to cause him to reflect deeply on his previously held materialistic worldview the science was pointing to that you can't back extrapolate any further than the point where all the galaxies would have converged at the beginning point. I remember him looking into the camera and saying, this is evidence for what can only be described as a supernatural event. There is no way this could have been predicted or mm. explained or described within physics. It was, he was essentially, he went on to say, what we're looking at in physics is similar to what the medieval theologians described as creatio ex nihilo, that wow. the universe has come into existence from nothing physical. Well, uh, Bill, let me start with you. Wintry Knight asks, what scientific evidence led scientists to accept the standard Big Bang cosmology in spite of the theistic implications? And has the progress of science overturned any of that evidence? Let me say first how much I appreciate Wintry Knight and his blogs. Uh, yes. My wife and I often read them. And I'm grateful for his question. Um, I think it was primarily the discovery of the red shift in the light from distant galaxies. 
Friedman and Lemaitre had predicted on the basis of Einstein's general theory of relativity that uh, the universe would be expanding against all expectation. And then Edwin Hubble, working at Mount Wilson, um, discovered that the light emanating from distant galaxies appeared to be shifted to the red end of the spectrum. And this was universal across the sky, wherever Hubble trained his telescope. And it was best explained by saying that the light from the galaxies is stretched because they are receding from us at tremendous speeds. Well, as you extrapolate that expansion back in time, in a finite amount of time, you come to an initial singularity um, before which space and time did not exist. So initially, it was this discovery of the redshift uh, and the expansion of the universe predicted by Friedman and Lemaitre. And then there were confirmatory evidences that came later. Has there been anything that has come out that would contradict that because I've got a couple of questions here about the James Webb uh, oh, Space please, Telescope, please. you know, and people are the social media tried to say, oh, maybe the Big Bang isn't true. So go ahead, Steve. What would you say there? Yeah, and then well, we'll go you back know, I've done Bill. a few interviews about this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, yeah. um, the, the James Webb is a wonderful new pieces of a, a piece of equipment that NASA put up in order to uh, detect very, very long wavelength light light, uh, actually not even light, it's electromagnetic radiation outside the visible spectrum. And um, what the, the purpose of the telescope is to look way back in time and there, and what's called a look back time in, in cosmology. The further out you look, the longer it takes the light to get to you. So if you're looking way, way, way out in space and you're able to detect, uh, for example, a galaxy, then you can calculate how long the light would have taken to get to you, and you know something about the minimum age of that galaxy. So we, since, since the time of Hubble that, that, uh, and the work that he did that Bill was describing, we've had other instruments developed, including the, the Hubble telescope, that have been able to look progressively further and further out in space. The James Webb telescope was designed to look as far back as we could conceive of looking. And um, it's, it's cooled to a very, very low temperature. The detection equipment is cooled to just a few degrees above absolute zero so that the detection equipment itself isn't putting out any infrared radiation that would, would um, interfere with the radiation they're, they're hoping to get. Now, why are they looking for infrared? Because infrared is very long wavelength um, electromagnetic radiation, the kind that you would expect from something that's been that is very far out in space where the redshift has been very extreme so they're looking for uber redshifted light if the uber. andromeda galaxy is fairly close to us we'll get a redshift but it will be a modest redshift if you look a bit further out then the next group of galaxies further beyond that the 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 radiation will be even more shifted if you get to 10 or 10 10 or 12 or 13 billion years ago then the radiation coming will be uber redshifted into that um, into that range of the um, the, the uh, sorry the um, infrared infrared sorry so <laughs> the claim has been made by one physics researcher without a PhD who's had a bee in his bonnet against the Big Bang since 1991 mm -hmm. 
He's written a book called The, the, the uh, Big Bang Never Happened, Eric Lerner. He said, well, there are these anomalies that are being, that are being detected by the James Webb. Uh, there are more galaxies early on than we would expect. Therefore, the Big Bang is, is, is wrong. But, and then he quoted a particular astronomer at the University of Kansas saying, oh, I'm starting to stay up all night wondering if everything we ever thought was wrong. Well, the anomalies have to do with our theories of galaxy formation and nothing to do with whether or not the universe is expanding outward from the beginning. And in fact, the very fact that the James Webb has able, been able to synthesize images of these very early galaxies, and that's the really extraordinary thing, it has been able to find very, very early galaxies, possibly even more than 13 billion years old, um, shows that it is detecting the kind of uber redshifted radiation that should be expected on the basis of an expanding universe expanding outward from a beginning. So the very fact that there are any galaxies that old to talk about, given what we know about what the James Webb is looking for in terms of very long wavelength radiation, shows that the kind of radiation that should be there, extra redshifted radiation, is there, and therefore that's actually confirmatory of an expanding universe, not, uh, not something that challenges it. Bill, I've heard you say before that uh, the 20th century was a period that even though many counter theories came up against Big yeah. Bang cosmology, that the standard model has emerged still victorious. Has there been any evidence to suggest from a scientific perspective the Big Bang is wrong? No, the only question would be whether or not it had a singular beginning. But whether or not it had an initial singularity or not, the prediction of the standard model that the universe is not past eternal but had a beginning has been confirmed over and over again. And the parade of failed theories over the decades attempting to avert the beginning of the universe has only served to corroborate that conclusion. With each falsification of these alternatives, the um, prediction of a beginning is corroborated. I really agree with that, Bill. You've had steady state, you'd have oscillating model, the oscillating model in the 80s now reprising mm -hmm. the various versions of the oscillating model, and they're, they're all problematic. The, uh, we have a question here saying if a new steady state theory would gain support, I don't know why, but they're suggesting this, or an everlasting multiverse theory, would the column argument be a god of the gaps argument, Bill? Well, no, because the primary defense of the second premise as I offer it is philosophical. You've, you've got to deal with those arguments against the metaphysical possibility of an infinite regress. So the scientific confirmation for me is just icing on the cake. Mm. It is empirical confirmation of a conclusion already reached by metaphysical argument. But in any case, his hypothetical isn't going to happen. Uh, there is no likelihood that there's going to be a new steady state model that will become the consensus. Steve, that's and, an interesting what, cool. Go ahead. Yeah, no. yeah I was just going to say that, that mm. what Bill just said earlier about the trend line and all of this is mm -hmm. that the, the, the accumulation of evidence from multiple sources, uh, the, the, the galactic redshift, the cosmic background radiation, the information we have about the age of stars, the COBE 
satellite data from the 90s. There's been an accumulation of evidence. It's all pointing in one direction. Uh, sometimes people will point out that there are a few galaxies that are blue shifted, but they're within, they're, they're in nearby uh, regions of space and um, these are these are these are localized anomalies. The, the overwhelming, um, you know, 99% um, of the data is showing the expansion, and so I think you know I, I think it's unlikely for that second premise to be overturned. And since I do make the argument more on the scientific basis and can't quite get my head around these arguments about actual infinites, I think the first time I got to know Bill was I called him on the phone after reading one of his apologetics books and said. Man, I, help me understand this this case against actual uh, infinites because it makes your head hurt. But this 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 book is this book is is close to an actual infinite, Steve. It's close. Well, okay, <laughs> it's I don't know how many pages, but <laughs> yeah, it, it, there is no such thing as an actual infinite. And I think, uh, Bill, that's an important point you made a minute ago because if we tie our faith to a scientific theory that later is overturned oh, yeah we have a problem don't we yes although it wouldn't do anything to falsify your faith mm -hmm. it would just mean you no longer have this positive evidence for mm. for this i mean god could have created a steady state universe ex nihilo 15 mm -hmm. billion years ago if he wanted to mm -hmm. so the beginning of the universe, I think, is something that can be verified scientifically, but it can't be falsified. So even if the evidence were somehow overturned, that would not present any threat to uh, my belief in creatio ex nihilo. Question. Frank, uh, could, I, could I say something about the God of the Gaps objection? Yeah, generally? sure, please do, because you because have a, you have a, a lot real, on, on the return of the God hypothesis on yeah, that. It's a, yeah, it's a real bugaboo. Um, a, a Gaps argument, a God of the Gaps argument is another way of saying you're, you're formulating an argument from ignorance, which is an mm -hmm. informal fallacy. If you say, well, uh, cause A can't produce effect X, therefore cause B did it, but you're not offering any reason to affirm the causal adequacy of B, then you have, a, then you have a, a, an argument from ignorance or a gaps argument. In making the case for intelligent design, we're not making a, a, an we're not committing that informal fallacy of, of an argument from ignorance. We're saying cause A can't produce, for example, the information, the type of information we find in DNA, but we do know of another type of cause, namely intelligent agency that has the causal powers uh, to produce that type of effect. So we have a positive reason for affirming the causal adequacy of an alternative explanation. And in the way I formulate the cosmological argument, the, by as, a, as an inference to the best explanation rather than a, an argument from ignorance, I'm just uh, uh, using an extrapolation from our, our knowledge of the causal power of agency to underwrite that argument. So it's, it's not a gaps argument because it's not, an, it's not an argument from ignorance, it's an inference to the best explanation. Uh, the, the concept of, of God has within it certain attributes that are actually re required to account for the data that we have from cosmology. And so therefore there's a basis for affirming it as a better explanation than other metaphysical hypotheses such as materialism or pantheism, um, et cetera. You're arguing for what you do know. Yes. We're arguing from what we do know or an yeah. extrapolation from what we do know to other forms of agency that we can conceive. Please, please. Namely, divine agency. Go yeah. ahead, Bill. 
please. One of the nice things about the deductive formulation mm -hmm. of the argument is that it completely subverts this objection. Because if the two premises are true, then it follows with logical necessity that there is a cause of the universe. It doesn't matter if you don't like the conclusion, if mm -hmm. you're against it, uh, and so forth. As long as the two premises are true, logic itself demands that the conclusion be true. Bill, though, with a deductive argument, the premises are arrived at through inductive means. So does that weaken the argument a little bit to say that? I mean, is it isn't it similar to the abductive approach in that regard? Well, the support for each premise can mm -hmm. include inductive argument. Yes, I, yes. I get inductive arguments for both of the two premises, mm -hmm. uh, as well as metaphysical philosophical arguments. So we want to employ the full range of of evidence. But I think it is worth pointing out that in the deductive formulation, it's just a matter of the truth of the two premises because the logic is impeccable. And so it just all depends. Do you think that whatever begins to exist has a cause? And do you think the universe began to exist? If those two statements are more plausibly true than false, then the conclusion follows logically necessarily. And ladies and gentlemen, if you do not think that every effect has a cause, then you've just given up science because that is mm. the ground of science, that every effect has a cause. So when we're saying that we think God exists, we're arguing from effect to cause. If there's a creation, that's the effect. We're reasoning back to a cause of creator. If there's design, that's the effect. We're reasoning back to a cause of designer. So we're reasoning from effect to cause. So when people ask me, how do you know God exists? I say, I know God by his effects. And if you want to give up cause and effect, you're giving up all of science. Frank, so, there's a lovely quote I just came across from James Clark Maxwell, the great 19th century physicist. Yeah. He, he said, the conclusion of design follows inexorably from an application of the laws of thought to the uh, to the uh, the objects of sense perception, mm. and one of those laws of thought is the is the idea that every every um, uh, everything that begins to exist must have a cause, mm. and and I, I think he, what he was getting at is that w we know something about um, another variation on that is the idea of causal adequacy. So he was looking at things in the biological realm that he knew from experience that, that had properties that only arose from intelligent agents, and therefore it required an intelligent agent to provide a causally adequate explanation of those those effects. So reasoning from effects back to causes is a very legitimate form of, of reasoning. And uh, and I think that is how we know God in one way, one way we know God. Bill, we, we have several questions that uh, have to do with how do we know the cause of the universe is the Christian God and not just a, any deistic or other theistic God? How would you respond to that? I would say that the Kalam cosmological argument uh, is an argument that supports all of the great monotheistic faiths, whether Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or deism. Uh, and that if you want to move beyond a kind of generic monotheism to Christian theism, then you must look at the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, and ask yourself, who is this man? He claimed to be the absolute revelation of God, the creator of the universe. Are those claims true? Uh, and I think they are, but that is a subsequent argument. Uh, so the Kalam argument is an argument that has great intersectarian appeal. It's been defended by Jews, by Muslims, by Christians, both uh, Protestant and, and Catholic. 
Uh, and so it's an argument uh, on which uh, all of the great monotheistic faiths can come together. You know, ironically, it's actually been acknowledged by Krauss and Dawkins that they've said before that one could make a reasonable case for a deistic God, not one that we would expect we, we would accept. But they're, they were literally admitting that, Bill. I don't no. know if you saw that when they were on their tour, I don't know, six, six or seven years ago. Huh. Uh, it, it seems to me they have a, a, a allergy against God for other reasons, not mm -hmm. the fact that he couldn't be a cause of the universe. Uh, let's see. We have uh, uh, people keep asking a question about the the uh, the board goose Valenkin theorem. Could any, either of you describe that uh, kind of sum up that theory in a couple of minutes? Who wants to take that? I think Bill does a great job of that in one of his books. Go for it. <laughs> okay, the, the idea is that the special theory of relativity, as Steve uh, explained, requires that as you grow back, go, regress back in time, you would reach a point at which you would uh, break through the speed of light, which is impossible, according to the special theory of relativity. And therefore, in order to prevent this, there has to be an absolute beginning of the universe um, so that this uh, um, breaking of the, the laws of nature would not occur. Okay. I've got a Steve. cool little di diagram in uh, Return of the God Hypothesis that right. shows this with a thought experiment involving spaceships. So if people want to dive into it, uh, that'd be a good place. And also, Father Robert Spitzer has a really nice little piece on this online explaining it. So that'd be a, something to uh, the, the Catholic uh, philosopher of cosmology, a uh, couple, couple resources for people to get into it more deeply. There is another resource, and that's an online course that Steve Meyer is going to be teaching starting on February 6th called Return of the God Hypothesis. If you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you'll see it there. You'll have several, I think six Zoom sessions with Steve himself. You can ask him any question you want. In addition to a number, a lot of video you'll be watching and questions you'll be asked during the course. So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You will see it there. Okay, we know this question's coming up. Uh, I don't know which one of you want to take this. Uh, Robert asks, I understand most agree that the universe is 13 or so billion years old. There is another argument that the Earth is 6,000 years old. Can those two timelines be reconciled? All right, we're about out of time, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, I'm going to just say frankly, no. I, and no. I think that the sooner the Christian community gets rid of young earth creationism, the better. This is uh, an embarrassment for the Christian faith that is creating enormous obstacles to Christian belief among scientifically educated people. The, the universe... Uh, is not, and the earth is not 6,000 years old. Uh, and there's no reason biblically to think that it is. Uh, and therefore we, we need to really shed ourselves of this as a Christian community. Uh, Steve, what do you think? Well, I, I sometimes in talking to people that have been raised with this belief who have a very high view of scripture, which I know you and I both share, I'll take them to the day four part of the creation account in Genesis 1. I think because my view has long been that the Bible does not teach a young earth. 
uh, because when you get to that passage in day four, we learn that God either created or caused to appear the sun and the moon, and they were given as markers of the days and the seasons. The Hebrew verb there is hayah, which can mean either created from nothing or caused to appear. But either way, we have already God has already established the days of creation, the yoms of creation. And we don't have any way of measuring time from a human point of view in the day one, day two, day three, as those days are being established. So there's a very good Bible scholar at Covenant Seminary, Jack Collins, who's often asked the question, are the days of creation old Hugh Ross days or are they young Ken Ham days? Uh, people are familiar with the figures in the, in the debate. And he says, neither. They are days of indeterminate length from a human point of view. The days were established before there were ways of, of, of keeping time from a human point of view. We keep time with the movement of the sun across the ecliptic or the movement or the, the, the phases of the moon on a monthly basis. Those time markers were not present when God established those days. And so it's really impossible, I think, to impose on the Genesis account our ideas of time. And we, net, we need to be very careful about uh, uh, about doing that. And also it means that if we want to get the, the temporal questions answered, we really do need to look to the scientific evidence. And as Bill said, I, I also agree that the evidence is very compelling for a very old earth and um, a, a very old universe. I'm sympathetic to the view that uh, cognitively advanced anatomically uh, modern man is a fairly recent vintage, however, and I think that's another question. I think we can't tell the history of the human race without also looking at the archaeology as well as bones on the African savanna. So I think there's some some issues there yet to, to wrestle with. Somebody ought to write a book on the biblical Adam. Oh, no, somebody ought to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, John Lennox makes the point on this. Uh, where he says the first verse of the Bible leaves the age of the universe indeterminate because it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, if you want to take a hyper literalistic view of that verse, the heavens and the earth are created before the days ever begin. Exactly. And, and so yeah. it is indeterminate even from that perspective. I understand why people try and and add everything up and say it's 6,000 years old. But I remember when uh, Dr. Richard Howe was asking, who happens to be a young earther himself, asked Ken Ham at the SES, uh, one of the SES uh, apologetics conferences, why do you think from scripture that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around? Because, oh. because you're using, uh, you're using the two books God has written. Yes, you're using the Bible, but you're also using the book of nature. And the book of nature Re en enables you to understand what the Bible means. You, 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 you wouldn't even know what the Bible meant unless you knew certain things about nature, like cause and effect for one thing, or language, or many other things you need to know prolegomena before you can actually do theology. Anyway, I, uh, John Lennox's book, Seven Days That Divide the World, might be a good book to get for you, uh, Robert, if you want to go a little bit further in that but you heard the kind of wishy-washy uh, uh, opinions of our guests here on that. <laughs> you can go a little bit further if you like. Um, here, here's a question from Tony, Bill, and I'm, I'm curious about this question because if you can't uh, go um, on an infinite regress backwards, was God somehow in time or, mm. or was God some, let me read the question. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. If there was ever a time in time or outside of time when there was nothing would not nothing still be i mean how could god if he is if he is uh, maybe we don't have time for this question bill but <laughs> how, how can god 
um, if he he's timeless, decide eight wouldn't wouldn't that be uh, wouldn't you run into the same kind of tense problem you would uh, that the cosmological argument shows is impossible? I don't know if I'm, I'm raises a host of very profound philosophical yes. questions. Uh, that I'm going to be discussing on a podcast Thursday with R.T. Mullins and Joe Schmidt about the relationship between God and time. And I've laid out a view in my book, Time and Eternity, in which I defend the view that God is timeless, existing alone without creation, but that he is in time from the moment of creation on. Um, and I think that that is a, a defensible and plausible view of the matter. And when you say he's in time, do you mean his actions are in time or do you mean somehow his essence is in time? If that can I mean be that God himself is in time, that God is a temporal being, uh, that he has a succession of thoughts in his mind, for example, that he knows it is now five o'clock. It is now five oh one. It is now five oh two. Um, so that he has a succession of contents of consciousness, which implies that he is temporal and he does things in the world as well. Um, God can't be raising Jesus from the dead when the exodus is occurring, um, because then that other is an unreal future possibility. So in performing causal acts in the world, I think God also exists at the time at which he causes the effect. So being causally and cognitively related to a temporal universe, I think, implies the temporality of God. Now, I recognize this is a controversial opinion, um, but I'm offering it simply as a model mm -hmm. uh, that is plausible and, and makes sense. Steve, any thoughts on that? Um, Bill's an expert on this philosophy of time, and I greatly respect his work on that. And that, does, that model does make sense to me, but I, am, or I don't work in that area. We have a couple of questions on evolution, but since that's not really pertaining to the cosmological mm -hmm. argument, I, I recommend you get both of their books. Well, they both have a, a number of books. The, the newest books for Steve, the newest book for Steve is Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, Bill, you have several new books, but with regard to apologetics systematically, reasonable faith would be the uh, the book to recommend. Any, and, and On Guard as well, which is uh, a little bit more for a general audience. So I highly recommend anything else you want to recommend book wise for that, Bill? Well, for those who are interested in evolution, particularly uh, the history of humanity, I think my book In Quest of the Historical Adam is a really good survey of both the biblical and the paleoanthropological evidence uh, concerning the origin of man. OK, yeah. uh, let's just take a couple more questions and then we will call it a day. Um, question, is the column a form of the design argument, and does Dr. Craig support intelligent design as a metaphysical argument? This comes from someone named Baked Alaska. <laughs> it is not a form of the design argument. It is mm -hmm. a form of the cosmological argument. Mm -hmm. And yes, I am an enthusiastic supporter of intelligent design as a metaphysical hypothesis. Uh, and in particular, I've defended uh, the inference to a cosmic designer on the basis of the fine tuning of the universe for intelligent life. The fact that the constants and quantities of nature seem to have been 
finely tuned to an exquisite and incomprehensible delicacy to permit the existence of embodied conscious life. And so all of these arguments, the cosmological argument, the design argument, the argument from the applicability of mathematics, the contingency argument for a ground of being, they all go to reinforce one another in making a, a very powerful case for theism. And Steve, that's and what I, you're doing yeah. in Return of the God Hypothesis. It you're adding exactly. up it's arguments. Putting, it, it's conjoining a version of the two versions of the design argument uh, 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 with the co cosmological argument. But I wanted to say something about the way in which the cosmological argument uh, ends up uh, becoming a design argument. Um, when you look at that, let's go back to the discussion we were having earlier about quantum cosmology. Uh, in order to circumvent or in an attempt to circumvent the problem of the beginning, the quantum cosmologists have presupposed beyond that veil at the beginning, the existence of a kind of uh, mathematical superstructure, the, the laws of quantum uh, mechanics synthesized in some way with uh, an Einsteinian view of gravity. And so there's this big equation they're working with to model the origin of the universe. It's called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation. If they, as I said before, if they can solve that equation and get a solution in the form of what's called a, a psi function, a universal wave function, and if that wave function describes our universe as a possible outcome, one of many possible outcomes, then they will say we have explained the origin of the universe. We already discussed the, prob the, the, the problem of invoking a pre-existing mathematical reality as an explanation for matter, space, time, and energy. But it's very interesting to watch how the physicists model the origin of the universe mathematically. They start with this equation, the, the Wheeler-DeWitt equation. It's a what's called a functional differential equation. It has an infinite number of solutions. And, and so you can't actually get a discrete solution that would enable you to model our universe unless you impose what are called boundary constraints or boundary conditions on that functional differential equation. And there are, there are several that have to be imposed to get an outcome, a psi function that includes a universe like ours. So in the end, what happens is that in order to model the origin of the universe, the mathematicians have to impose constraints on mathematical degrees of freedom. In other words, they have to put input information into the equation to get an outcome that they want that will allow them to say, hey, we've explained the origin of the universe. Now, what I want, what I argued in the in the book was, well, what then are they actually modeling? They're actually modeling a form of intelligent design because it's their minds that are choosing the constraints, inputting the information to get the outcome they want. It's an indirected teleological process that's driven by their own intelligence. And insofar as it's a simulation in the sense of a, it's it's modeling the origin of the universe. They're actually modeling the intelligent design of the universe. There has to be a constraint on possibilities to actualize a universe that has the attributes that we recognize as one which is life-friendly. And so the attempt to circumvent the cosmological argument ends up actually providing support for a kind of cosmic design argument. And so I think these two arguments end up in, inevitably being linked. Anything to add to that, Bill? Only that it connects with the applicability of mathematics argument as well that I mentioned mm. earlier. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely it does. Bill, uh, let me ask you this. This is from Sandy. 
in talking with skeptics about the impossibility of time to be eternal, because we can't get to today if there were an infinite number of moments before today, there have been pushbacks saying that science shows time is not linear like we think of it. Therefore, time can be eternal in the past. I'm not sure how to respond. How would you? Well, that makes no sense at all. How could time be eternal if it's not linear? Yeah. If it's not linear, it would have to have some other sort of geometry like circular, in which case it would be finite. So the, the, the hypothesis doesn't even make sense. But in any case, the geometrical structure of time is not something that can be decided scientifically. Exactly. Um, Science has nothing to say about a question like that. No, this is a metaphysical hypothesis, and uh, he, he needn't be intimidated by it. Hey, Bill, can you uh, just do me a favor? I'd love to hear your response to this or your recollection of it, because the first time I ever saw you debate was live in Atlanta, Georgia, in April, I want to say, of 1998. And you were debating a man by the name of uh, Atkins, Peter Atkins. And you've debated him, too, Steve. Peter Twice. Atkins is, yeah. is kind of grumpy, we all know. And, uh, <laughs> and Bill, uh, uh, Bill Buckley was the moderator. Yeah. And I, I just recall this debate where uh, Dr. Or, uh, Buckley introduced you and he, he said, Dr. Craig is representing the Christian position. Then when he got to Atkins, he said, representing the devil, <laughs> Dr. Peter Atkins. <laughs> anyway, there was a point in the debate, Bill. I don't know if you can recreate this answer, but it's, it's, it's debate gold where um, uh, Atkins said, you don't deny that science can explain everything, do you? Do you remember your five-point response? Vaguely, yes. Uh, <laughs> Atkins is scientistic. Yes. Not scientific. He's scientistic. Uh -huh. He thinks that the only source of knowledge is science. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's patently false because we have knowledge that is not scientific. And I suggested things like um, mathematical knowledge and mm -hmm. logical knowledge, uh, metaphysical knowledge, ethical and aesthetic truths, and scientific truths themselves in many cases cannot be proven scientifically, but are based upon assumptions. Uh, and so it's, it's demonstrably false that science is the only source of knowledge and truth. Yes, it was a it was a five point takedown to which Buckley looked at uh, Atkins and said, put that in your pipe and smoke it <laughs> because he was totally rooting for you, Bill, the whole way through. Yeah, he was very biased, but <laughs> completely impartial moderator. That's right. It's a classic debate, ladies and gentlemen. Look for the Craig Atkins debate and uh, you will you will enjoy that back and forth. Steve, uh, what are you working on now? And uh, where can people learn more about what you're doing? Uh, well, the website that has the most uh, exhaustive compilation of relevant uh, material is the new one we've created for the new book, returntothegodhypothesis.com. We also have a website from the previous my previous book, darwinsdoubt.com, which has a whole lot of uh, uh, animation, um, uh, video shorts, uh, debates. Um, I had a lovely debate with uh, Atkins on the BBC one time on the ra on the radio. That was a lot of fun. Uh, he's he's a wonderful curmudgeonly figure. <laughs> um, 
And uh, uh, we have a number. I'm working on a number of media projects right now, getting the the, uh, the the message of Return of the God hypothesis and some of our other work on design to the world in uh, in documentary forms and things like that. So, and Steve's going to be teaching a new course called Return of the God Hypothesis. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you'll see it. But you better sign up soon. There's a cap on the number that can be in there. So check that out. Bill, what have you been working on lately, and where can people learn more about what you're doing? I am working on my magnum opus, which is a systematic philosophical theology of the Christian faith. And I am currently working on the second volume, which deals with doctrine of creation. And so ironically, this has taken me into the discipline from which Steve uh, came, namely origin of life studies. And I've been reading a lot of origin of life literature with a view toward trying to craft a theological perspective on the origin of life. Since as Christians, we believe that God is the source of all life, both non-physical and physical life. And so I want to ask, how does that look? Check uh, Bill out at reasonablefaith.org. Uh, Bill and uh, Kevin Harris do a, a, a podcast every week. And I listen to it every week. And also you do a question of the week too, Bill, don't you have on the website, reasonablefaith.org. And you have a number of courses too that you've just uh, released, haven't you? Well, not courses per se, um, though I will be teaching at Houston Christian University in March, okay. a class on the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. And this is open to anybody to join us okay. online and okay. they can participate in the class discussion. So that is available or will be. All right. So the conclusion of this, gentlemen, has the cosmological argument been defeated? Is it still sound? Bill Craig. <laughs> it is still a very powerful argument for the existence of God, one that I think increasingly um, receives confirmation, both scientifically and philosophically. Steve, Dr. Craig. I, Dr. I agree that with, yeah, I agree with that. And I'd add that the repeated attempts to disconfirm the argument or to refute the argument, which have failed, uh, I think, uh, reinforce its strength. I had a, a supervisor when I was a PhD student in Cambridge who said, beware the sound of one hand clapping. If there's an argument on one side, there's bound to be an argument on the other. And he said the corollary of that is that you can often tell the strength of an argument by how well it withstands the most spirited objections. And I think the formulation that Bill first advanced in 1979, which he's updated continually, and some of the other formulations of the argument, one of which I've advanced, I think show that this uh, approach to making a case for God is very robust indeed. There are, in a sense, many roads that are leading to the same conclusion, and each of these arguments has uh, fared very well against attempts to refute it, thus reinforcing the, the its strength. And ladies and gentlemen, if Genesis 1-1 is true, every other verse in the Bible is at least possible. Because in my view, it's the greatest miracle in the Bible, the creation of the universe out of nothing. So it's quite easy to believe in the other miraculous events in the Bible if, in fact, Genesis 1-1 is true. And thanks to the work of Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, we have great evidence that Genesis 1-1 does appear to be true. So Jesus certainly could have risen from the dead if God exists and, and God is has created the universe out of nothing. And that, that's a whole nother argument. I remember my 
My, uh, my mentor, Dr. Geister, said you really only need to prove two things to show that Christianity is true. Number one, God exists. Number two, Jesus rose from the dead. And so today we talked about the first question. Maybe we'll have another live stream on the second. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. I want to thank Dr. Craig and Dr. Meyer. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you for your continued work and guidance on these issues. Thank you, Frank and Bill. Great, great discussion. All right. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you here next time. God bless.